Tokyo, Japan, I'm Frank Ling. And from Chicago, Illinois, I'm Charles Lee. And you're listening to the Grok Science Show. That's right, it's a weekly look at the world of science, technology, and their effects on our daily lives. Coming up on today's show, hips and oxygen. In addition, we'll be joined by Mr. Paul Roberts, who will discuss the end of food. So stay tuned for all this. Plus the Grokatron 5000. And the world famous question of the week. Coming right up. Here. On the Grok's Science Show. Rock Science, I'm Frank Ling. And I guess that makes me Charles Lee. How you doing, Frank? Pretty cold, actually. Of course, the future is much colder as well, right? <laughs> yeah, when the Ice Age hits, right? <laughs> so how are your hips doing, Charles? Well, after the the replacement surgery, they're doing much better. Oh, what, what, was it kind of squeaky or something? <laughs> <laughs> you know, I just felt like I needed bionic hips, you know. Oh, okay. <laughs> so you can jump through uh, windows and cross buildings, right? And, and of course, fight crime. <laughs> oh, of course. So anyways, I I guess speaking about hips, scientists have figured out that our ancestors apparently had much wider hips. In fact, they were big enough that the heads of the babies were at least 30% larger than the heads of humans. Right, for humans, the, the narrow hips actually leads to a lot of problems during birth. It's kind of one of the disadvantages of being upright animals. Right. So it turns out for humans, babies are actually pretty helpless. And in fact, it takes quite a bit of care by the parents. But what scientists believe is that our ancestors, the babies are already more developed and more robust than our human babies. Right. Yeah. I mean, so that that is one of the problems, of course, is that the, the babies need to be born more immature in order to fit through the canals. Right. Um, our ancestor uh, could, of course, be a little more developed. doesn't really mean that humans are what less evolved, but the conclusion is that the offsprings of our ancestors were quite strong and that most likely they had shorter childhoods because they were already uh, developed when they were born. Uh, they're going to miss out on all the uh, the fun things of childhood. <laughs> yeah, like Disneyland. <laughs> This was reported in a very interesting journal, the Times of India. That's almost my favorite journal. Or if you want to see their original article, it was in Science. Very cool. (laughs) Okay, well, hopefully our uh, ancestor babies had a lot of oxygen. Yeah, you know, we don't want our humans to be methanotropes, right? (laughs) Uh, but of course, uh, I'm sure you're well aware that athletes, when they're training for a bigger competition, like to use high-altitude training. Yes, they train up in the mountains where there's less oxygen so that once they come back to sea level, they're used to absorbing more oxygen than they're used to, right? Right, their blood cells start to carry more oxygen. One of the drawbacks is that if you're training at high altitudes, you can't really train as hard as you do at low altitudes. So the gains that you get from the higher red blood cell count is sort of offset by the fact that you're not really training as hard as you would be if you're training at sea level. Right. Um, So new research published in the uh, Journal of Applied Physiology suggested that you could combine the best of both worlds, essentially training at low altitudes but with the low oxygen content of high altitudes, that might be the best situation. Uh Uh-huh. Since basically all athletes don't have the advantage of having a mountain nearby that they can just go up daily and train at, They suggest these hermetically sealed training tents, which have low oxygen level in them as they're training. 
This particular uh, project is funded by uh, Nike and uh, the Oregon Health <laughs> Institute, and they think that this is actually going to be a more effective method of training than just training at high altitudes by itself. Cool. So speaking of sports medicine, it, it turns out there's another study going on to see if Viagra should be disqualified as a, a possible sports-enhancing agent. <laughs> well, it is it is a performance-enhancing drug, so... <laughs> <laughs> In more ways than one. Indeed. <laughs> Better stock up while you can. <laughs> So this was actually, again, in the Journal of Applied Physiology. Cool. And that's all for a look at recent developments in the world of science and technology. This is the Grox Science Show. Coming up in just a few minutes, Mr. Paul Roberts will join us to discuss the end of food. So stay tuned. to the Grox Science Show. Well, the world's food supply is often thought to be wholly inefficient in large regions of the world, but the scope and nature of the problem may be far more wide-reaching than previously thought, perhaps resulting in the end of food. Well, joining us today to discuss this issue is Mr. Paul Roberts. Mr. Roberts is the critically acclaimed writer whose work has appeared in the Los Angeles Times, Washington Post, and Harper's Magazine. His first book, The End of Oil, was a critically acclaimed bestseller, and his latest work, The End of Food, explores this issue for a general audience. Mr. Roberts, thank you very much for joining us today on the Grok Science Show. My pleasure. Well, certainly our pleasure, and I think this is really a very fascinating book. I'm curious, how is it that the current food-based production system is failing? Well, you know, you could look at pretty much any category, whether your concern was, say, food safety or nutritional content, say, the food security globally or the security of food that's coming into the United States from abroad. On nearly every dimension, we are losing ground. It sort of reverses a lot of the success we've had over the last century. So, you know, we're a long ways from being back where we were in the late 19th century when food poisoning, you know, took thousands of us and when hunger was far more prevalent. But the fact that we are going backwards at a time when you know, we're making such tremendous advances in other parts of our life is really uh, you know, a cause for concern. What are, do you think are the main culprits of this problem then? Well, I think that it would be great to be able to say it's this company or it's this politician, but the truth is that it's a complicated outcome that really results from being too successful. I mean, at the root of this is our success at transforming food into a sort of an industrial commodity. And I know that sounds gruesome, but, but what I mean there is that we have figured out how to make food nearly any other product. And, and a lot of the technologies and the business processes and the business methods that we perfected in other sectors, you know, be they making cars or TV sets, we've applied to food, and more or less we've, we've done it successfully. So mass production, driving down costs, getting economies of scale, rapid distribution, global distribution, 
all those developments that really sort of emerge in other sectors we've applied to food. So the upside is that we have a food system that up until recently could keep costs very low and could deliver all sorts of added values like more convenience, more fresh produce in the middle of winter. What we're now seeing, though, is many of the attributes, many of the sort of the qualities, the things that, that were improved are now becoming weaknesses. An example would be a system that moves food very quickly, that can distribute food in, in a matter of days or even hours. It does bring you fresh produce in the middle of winter, but it also means that if a pathogen enters the food supply, it can be in the store and at home and in you before health authorities even know that there's a problem. So the, that really underlines, I think, the challenge of fixing the system, because it's not just a matter of changing one element or arresting one person or putting one company out of business. It's changing an entire system and re-jiggering sort of our expectations for what our food system is going to give us. So it's really the complicated network of interactions that uh, makes the problem problematic. Right, like everything else. And so when somebody begins by saying the problem is just this, this company, these politicians, this industry, you can pretty much turn off your radio because you know that they're barking up the wrong tree. But certainly there are some issues. So distributing food across wide regions requires an oil-based transportation system, which can be hit fairly heavily should oil be hit as it is now. Exactly. And so what does that mean? It means that we're you know, going to have to think about the fuel that we put in our tractors, the fuel that we use to move the food from the farm to the factory, all the energy that goes into processing and packaging. I mean, you, as I'm sure you've heard it, there's often more energy used up in packaging a product than is contained in the calories in that product itself. And then, of course, like you mentioned, there's transportation. And we've developed this entire model that sources globally that moves food all over the globe. And it really has become part of our expectation as to what we can go to the store and find any time of year. So how do we back up from that? And does that simply mean that we eat less produce in the middle of winter? Does it mean we all pay more for it? Does it mean that wealthy people can afford produce? It's really going to force us to come back to issues of global, I guess, equity that we really haven't had to mess with much for the past couple of years. I mean, the fact that food's been so cheap has meant that more people around the globe can be satisfied in terms of their food security. And that's been a huge issue in terms of political stability. Fifty years ago, we were constantly worried that food insecurity would lead to food riots, would lead to the downfall of all of Asia. Communism would take over because people were hungry. And with some of the revolution, some of the transformation of the food system, the increases in output, the technologies that allowed us to boost yields, we were able to temporarily put that off by making food so plentiful and, and relatively cheap that it was a fairly small minority of the population that wasn't getting enough. And much of that scarcity really had to do less with the amount of food worldwide than with local or regional obstacles. And they were often political obstacles, bad roads, corrupt governments, or the low incomes of certain populations. There was enough food. Now we're reaching a point where on top of those obstacles, there's also this issue of larger scarcity, which then brings back the issue of is food security going to lead to a greater gulf between rich and poor and more political instability. In that regard, how much is increasing demand in places like China and India affecting the increased scarcity of food? Well, you know, I think the question that people have is, should we be blaming booming Asia, or is this more a question of bad energy policy in the West? Uh, are we turning it too much food into fuel, and is that causing it? It's, it's a combination of both. The very ambitious biofuels initiatives in the United States and Canada and Europe and even in Asia are having a significant impact on the supplies of grain. There's, there's no question. I mean, you can't argue 
as the biofuels industry sometimes does, that they are, on the one hand, having a huge, you know, adding hugely to the supplies of alternative fuels, while at the same time claiming to be having a negligible impact on the supply of the grain needed to make that alternative fuel. So that doesn't wash. And we may need to rethink how much governments subsidize biofuels production if it continues to put this kind of pressure on supply. That said, biofuels is a temporary phenomenon. It is a political animal. It's created by Congress in this country and by governments elsewhere, and it can be taken away by a political act. And you don't have the similar sort of quick fix, if you will, for these other issues like demand in Asia. And these are longer term and much deeper and more fundamental, and they're going to emerge as much bigger drivers for price and for food insecurity in the future. So we've got booming populations, but what's key is that their populations are bigger, but they're also getting wealthy enough to eat higher on the food chain. And in particular, we mean more meat. I know I'm sure you're familiar with the magic ratio. It takes eight pounds of grain to make a pound of meat. Mm -hmm. And that geometric leverage, if you will, means that as societies become more carnivorous, the demand for grain goes up geometrically. And where are we going to grow all that and how, given that inputs like oil and fertilizer and water and a stable climate are sort of less certain, these become really compelling questions. Uh, I'm curious, how did we get to this point of very large agribusiness? Well, you know, going back to the notion that we'd, we'd sort of taken the industrial model and applied it to food, driving down food costs was the sort of the primary objective. And then that has been a human obsession for since the beginning. We've always wanted to get the most calories for the least effort. And we sort of industrialized that paradigm. And economies tend to favor producers of any product that can generate that product most cheaply. And one of the ways you generate things cheaply is is increasing your scale so that you're pumping out more units, whether those be bushels or cars. And that means you can spread your costs, your fixed costs, over more units. So your cost per unit goes down. And, you know, that's fantastic until it's not. The individual farmer, say, produces more bushels and lowers his cost or her cost per bushel. But in the aggregate, all those farmers producing more bushels adds to supply, which drives down price, which means that the farmer has to produce even more bushels. Now, we've responded in the past by trying to prop up the price, either by paying farmers not to produce or more recently by simply giving them a a payment to make up for the money they were losing, since it costs them more to grow a bushel than they could actually sell the bushel for. But that ultimately just encourages even more overproduction. And up until very recently, the problem was overproduction. It's hard to do with all this overabundant food. And we found things to do with it. We, we turned it into other things. We turned it into sweeteners, into the case of corn, or we turned it into meat, or, and then we thought we'd turn it into fuel, too. But the underlying sort of dynamic that low-cost production is the objective, that's really what we're dealing with here. And, and we have to find a way to sort of balance the very useful benefit of low-cost food with some of the downsides of overproduction and large-scale production. Uh, So what are some of the solutions to this, then? Do you think we should encourage more regional-type farming or, of course, eating less meat, which is very, as you mentioned, energy-intensive? Well, I think that it's taken us a long time to get in this mess, and it's going to take some time to get out, and the answers aren't going to be easy, and they're not going to be transparent, by which I mean they're going to be very apparent that we are doing something different, and some of that difference is going to be okay, and some of it I think many of us are going to object to which, of course, will make the whole process more challenging. I think we need to start at the government level. I mean, we're going to need to find ways to make food in different, less intensive ways that use less energy and less water, less fertilizer, and that requires very strong 
R&D basis. You need research and development to come up with the technologies and methods that let you do that. Now, these aren't insurmountable challenges. We know we can make food with less fertilizer or with less energy, but we really haven't had to worry about that for a long time because those inputs have been so cheap, and we really dropped the ball in terms of researching new methods. A government in particular, we've turned over a lot of our food R&D to the private sector. So we need to come back to that and recognize that you know if you don't start putting R&D into the pipeline, you're not going to have anything when you need it. When there finally is a consensus that we need to change the system, we'll look at our sort of R&D portfolio and realize that the pipeline is dry. So that has to happen. I think we need to consider high energy prices that are going to, for example, are going to push us away from a system that is so sprawling and so global, and it's going to make regional make a lot more sense. And you already see retailers now kind of quietly sourcing for more regional producers. They don't want to advertise this because even though local is now quite fashionable, retailer doesn't want to say, hey, now we're shopping regionally, but then next month when prices change, now we're not. But I think that from a strictly a business standpoint, retailers are going to begin looking more fondly on regional producers. And these are producers who, say in New York, you might find a producer in New York who a couple years ago couldn't compete with the big produce growers out in the Salinas Valley in California, but now with higher transportation costs can compete, or at least can compete part of the year. So it would make sense for a, a grocery retailer maybe to source from New York. So you're going to see things like that. And then from the, at the consumer level, I think we're going to have to change the way we think about food. <laughs> I guess that means starting by thinking about food, because we really haven't had to think, many of us, the mainstream of us, really haven't had to think about food much over the last 20 years because the industry has really taken over that function. You know, they find the materials, they turn them into processed foods. Even when we do some cooking, the ingredients come to us. We're many degrees of separation from the production. And we don't really have to worry about much at all except being able to afford it. In the past couple of years, all those assumptions have been turned upside down. We are less and less willing to trust the industry to you know, bring us safe or nutritious food. We're certainly paying more for our food. And I think we're recognizing that this lack of control, this, this having ceded power over our food to an entity that has different and a different agenda than we do, probably wasn't a great idea. If you look at a food company, they want to sell you food, and they don't really care if you take home, let's say, a value-sized muffin that's as big as your head and actually has eight servings in it, and you eat it all at once. They don't really care. I mean, they'd rather you didn't die of a heart attack before you, you know, sort of completed your potential lifetime's worth of purchases but they don't really care how happy you are during that lifetime. In fact, they would much rather you be a little bit unhappy because we tend to solve unhappiness in this country by buying more things. So recognize the food industry doesn't share your concerns, or at least all of them. Now, once you've recognized that, then the question is, what do you do? This is the Martha Stewart moment, but I think beginning cooking again would probably be a good start. But these are the kinds of things that we're going to need to do, and they're going to take time, and they're going to take effort and they're not going to be easy, but maybe the sort of the ease that we've imagined that our food system had taken on, maybe that ease was sort of artificial in the same way that the cheapness of oil was artificial, and maybe it's time to pay the piper on that regard. Well, I guess maybe to close, I'm curious, how long do you think our current food supply system can last, and what do you think will really take to uh, sort of galvanize both policymakers and the public to demand some kind of change? Well, I think you're seeing incremental demands. I think people, again, are concerned about safety, nutrition. You have a colleague of mine called sort of activist food citizens who are, he doesn't like to call them consumers because that's too passive. He likes the idea of activist idea where you're, t- you're being engaged with your food and you're, t- you're, you're using your sort of voting power and your 
citizenship to change things. So there's kind of the gradual incremental thing where you have an increasingly dissatisfied population making these incremental demands, and you have incremental responses by industry and by government. And then you have this sort of the disruption model where some huge disaster arrives and forces major change. And there's a growing number of skeptics who think, or cynics, I suppose, or pessimists, who think that it's only going to be that big disruption that's going to force us, it's going to galvanize us enough to be serious. And my concern is that when that happens, we won't have, again, talking about that, the lack of, of research that we've been doing on food, we won't have enough options available to make some intelligent choices. I think that what governments could do right now is start feeding that pipeline, even before there's political consensus that we need to do this, even before we've got people clamoring for change, I think a shrewd policy would be to begin feeding that pipeline and priming that system, sort of getting it up to speed, because we know sooner or later it's going to be very necessary. I certainly want to thank you, Mr. Roberts, for joining us. The new book, of course, is called The End of Food, and uh, that's out in uh, stores right now. Mr. Roberts, thank you very much for joining us today on the Grok Science Show. Well, thanks for your time. And you were just listening to Mr. Paul Roberts discussing the end of food. This is the Grok Science Show. Well, coming up in just a few minutes, it's the Grokatron 5000 and the world-famous Question of the Week. So stay tuned. Your butt is wide. Well, mine is too. Just watch your mouth or I'll sit on you. The word is out. Better treat me right. Because I'm the king of cellulite. Ham on. Ham on, ham on whole wheat, all right. My zippers bust, my buckles break. I'm too much man for you to take. The pavement cracks when I fall down. I've got more chins than Chinatown. But I never used a phone booth, and I never seen the toes. All right, we're ready to play the game. It is the Grokatron 5000. It is our supercomputer formerly known as Deep Bloom. Today's uh, game it will be called Nutritious or Empty Calories. So for the following five people, the Grokatron 5000 would like to know if you think they're nutritious or they're just empty calories and maybe a little reason why. Uh, Mr. Roberts, you ready to play the game? Yes. Okay, here we go. Person number one, nutritious or empty calories, Paris Hilton. Well, I would have said empty calories up until her scathing rebuttal to the McCain campaigns comparing her to Obama or Obama to her. Okay. So she's, she's gained a little fiber. All right, so something substantive for once. Okay. All right, number two is uh, Oprah Winfrey. Um, I'd have to say she's nutritious. There, there's probably more calories there than you want, just in terms of the, the volume of stimuli, but many of them are nutritious, and she does really get people to think about issues that matter. Uh, number three is the Fed Chairman Ben Bernanke. Oh, he is all fiber all the time. <laughs> I think he's very nutritious, but it's sort of like a, a pure meat diet. It's uh, you, you've really got to you know take it um, uh, only occasionally. Okay. Hopefully, he'll get the economy moving. Right. Uh, number four is uh, Microsoft former CEO Bill Gates. Well, he's sort of like you know one of those diets that was really, really kind of front and center a decade ago, and is now being sort of rethought. So. <laughs> 
I think that, you know, there's still some value in the Bill Gates diet. Still, I mean, if it's all you had to eat, then I would certainly recommend it. It's better than starving, but there are probably certainly better products on the market. Okay. <laughs> all right. And finally, number five, it's the President of the United States, George Bush. Well, <laughs> I, uh, I think it's, uh, it's interesting. He's a mouthful. It's hard to say. I, 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 he's not in my diet. I just let me put it that way. <laughs> All right. Uh, well, Mr. Roberts, I do want to thank you for sticking around, playing the game, and, of course, talking about your new book, which is The End of Food. Thank you very much. Oh, you're welcome. Thank you. All right. And now it's this week's question of the week. How does Viagra work? And joining us with our answer is Mr. Daniel Plainview, our whiskey-drinking, rifle-toting guest of the week. Uh, Mr. Plainview. My name is Daniel Plainview. This is my son, H.W. I'm an oil man. And I've abandoned my child! I've abandoned my child! I've abandoned my child! But I can get another one by taking some Viagra. That's right. You have some Viagra, I have some Viagra. I take your Viagra! Because it opens up blood vessels by vasodilation, activating nitric oxide, which opens up the blood vessels. And I can get another child! I can get another child! Thank you, I've been Daniel Plainview. Have a nice day. Hey, thanks a lot, Mr. Plainview. And that's all for this week's edition of Grok Science. Make sure you tune in next week for more from the world of science and technology. If you'd like to contact us here at Grok Science, you can email us at groks at hotmail.com. For Grok Science, I'm Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. Make sure you also see us on the web at www.groks.net. Have a great afternoon and keep on grokking.